Hello, Coffeehouse Shops listeners. My name is Freddie Gray, and I edit The Spectator's US edition. And the big story of 2020 is going to be the American election. So I would like to urge you all to listen to my Americano podcast, where we discuss everything that's going on in Trump world and Democrat world. If you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Americano, you can listen to it all. I'm joined today by Eitan Hirsch, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at Tufts University and the author of a new book called Politics is for Power, How to Move Beyond Political Hobbyism, Take Action and Make Real Change. Now, Eitan, I came across uh, your book through a piece in The Atlantic, which was very, very interesting, and it sets up what I believe is the theme of your book, which is that we are living in a time where many of us are political hobbyists and we think that we're very interested in politics and we think we're taking part in politics. Um, But we are interested in it much in the same way as a a sports fan might be interested in football, say, and we don't actually engage in it. And that this is causing, you say, terrible problems with politics in modern society. Is that a fair summation of of what you're trying to say? Yeah, I think that's just right. (laughs) And what, in what ways is political hobbyism, as you call it? How does it work? How does it warp politics? Sure. So we have all of these people, like probably 80 or 90 percent of the people who say they're interested in politics, who spend time, significant time, like an hour or more a day on politics, not at all doing real politics. That is, they don't have strategies to achieve any goals. They don't have some kind of long-term plan. They have basically uh, an attempt at instant gratification to be close to the importance of big ideas. And they think about political power as like a topic of interest, but not as something that they want for the values or interests they care about. Okay, so why is that bad? You might just think, well, you know, maybe they would just screw up politics if they got involved. There's a few reasons why it's bad. One obvious reason it's bad is it makes politicians behave badly. So if you have all of these voters, the majority of those who are attentive to politics, really seeking kind of like emotional catharsis and instant gratification, then the politicians respond to that in ways that are damaging to their own their own incentives, their own interests. So, you know, in the book, I give an example of this with campaign contributions. So there's been this big shift in the U.S. towards low dollar donations, where instead of having, you know, rich people give thousands of dollars, you have a lot of people giving five or ten dollars. And usually if I go before an American audience and I say, who is the best politician at raising low dollar donations? Nearly everyone immediately says, actually, I've never been to an audience where they didn't say, Everyone says Bernie Sanders. But of course, that's not true. Donald Trump is the best at raising low dollar donations. In 2016, he raised more than Sanders and Clinton combined. He raised more than Obama did. And that's because what drives low dollar donations is basically being like really provocative and outrageous and, and you know, making viral videos. And, and all the politicians know this. I mean, they, see, they, they all test messages online and they know what works and they know this is what works. And what's happened is every time there's a congressional hearing, which is broadcast on C-SPAN for all to see, every politician is basically attempting the entire time to make a viral video of themselves so they can get money. 
And sometimes I think this is very damaging to strategy. So I give an example in the book that we don't have to get into. It's a little complicated about the um, Supreme Court justices who Trump nominated and were successfully rose to the bench, where in the first case, Justice Gorsuch, there was this big effort upon the Democrats to to filibuster him, prevent him from going. And you had a bunch of moderates in this U.S. Senate saying, hey, like, don't try to oppose this justice because there might be another one coming down the pike and we could make a deal and blah, blah, blah. And it turns out like because they were so interested in feeding the kind of emotional demands of the active base, I think the Democrats made a mistake in the Supreme Court justice nominations by making a big fight against Justice Gorsuch, which then prevented them from having a big fight or a successful fight against the next justice, Justice Kavanaugh, who was even more controversial. But we see, I think, on both sides, you know, I think we see, um, you know, I think we could we could probably talk about Brexit as a as a as an example of political hobbyism and and really kind of a short term focus on politics. Uh, so I think we see damage all over the place with this. Yes, well, it's interesting you mentioned Brexit, because I mean, that's certainly what a lot of people have identified, although I don't think they've identified it from the, from the angle you do, is that it is like supporting a team now. It is, it's us against them, and it's, it's tribal in a very online way. But what you're saying is that doesn't translate into reality or real political change. It can. It's just that it's not very good. I mean, it's not very thoughtful change. I mean, so so part of this is like, great. That it's a, it's a waste of time, right? It's a waste of time that all these people who are spending their time on political hobbyism could be achieving uh, other goals. But that's not to say that it's not powerless in the sense that you could have, you know, if you have a politics where the politician gets a lot of money if they make insane videos of themselves and that's how they get money, you're influencing politics. You know, if you turn your your country into a system where we everything is by ballot initiative and voters get to vote on everything and and you know and you have petitions that you know you can name a government boat Bodie McBoatface and you can destroy your economy through just a ballot initiative and you know like th- there's ways that this is that has real meaningful impacts I think it just doesn't serve necessarily the interests of the of the hobbyists. But it, the reason hobbyism is so commonplace is that it is easy and it's not just for people who are well off although obviously it's it is even easier for people who are well off and living comfortable lives to waste more of their time but it's easy to get angry to satiate your need for emotional reactions in politics because we are most of us living quite comfortable lives and therefore Politics does just become a branch of the entertainment industry, doesn't it? That's right. It's a shortcut to feeling engaged without being engaged. And the reason I think you see, you know, in my studies of this, you can see very clearly that the people who who kind of are most comfortable do political hobbyism the most. That is, right now in the United States, if you were to ask, you know, if you if you figure out who spends the most time on political engagement, it's basically like college educated white men, college educated white men. If you ask them a bunch of if you ask Americans a bunch of like factual questions about the government, you know, like trivia questions, college educated white men would get the most correct. But these are not the people who are most engaging in volunteerism in kind of strategic political action. And I think that when you see that, for example, women are way more likely, particularly since the Trump election, to get involved in politics, when you see that African-Americans, Latinos in America are much more likely to engage in volunteerism than whites, I think you reach the conclusion that, oh yes, if you um, actually need something from government or if you fear the status quo, then you actually can't treat politics like entertainment. Yes. 
And do you think it explains a lot of the anger, particularly online, about politics, in that a lot of people, they don't realise they're political hobbyists, but they think they're engaged in some great struggle. Um, but actually, because they're not engaging in activism or anything more concrete, they're not really changing the fundamental dynamics of what's happening politically. Therefore, they find themselves increasingly frustrated and sort of howling into the wind on, online. Right. Well, they're howling into the wind because they're not actually trying to do anything. I mean, this is actually like <laughs> this is a great a great way to know whether you're in a relationship involving power. Right. So in the real world, we have all sorts of relationships where we're trying to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do, like a boss or your children. And when you're engaging in those relationships and you're trying to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do, you have to practice a certain set of skills like empathy. Like, where is this person coming from? Like, what do they want out of this situation? Like, how can I meet them where they are? All that. But in politics, especially online politics, most of us shift into this teamsmanship, right? Where it's more like, I hate those other people. They're, they're stupid and evil and I want nothing to do with them. Now you realize that like you can only say that if you're not trying to get anything from them. <laughs> like like that's why we do politics like that. If we're not trying to move anyone or trying to do anything, then we want to make it the sort of like the most exciting it can be. In the book, I use this example of my home baseball team. I live about two miles from Fenway Park, where the Boston Red Sox play. Yeah. And you know whether the, you know we we've been chanting every every game. You go to Fenway Park, particularly if it's against the Yankees, we chant "Yankees suck." The whole you know Yankees suck. Even if we're playing Los Angeles, we chant "Yankees suck," and it's a joke, right? It's like it it's a joke, and it's because like we're not doing anything other than watching a baseball game. And in that setting, some of us crass people in Boston think it's okay to say Yankees suck. And, and so I think politics gets like that when you're not trying to do anything more than a game. I mean, in the book, I spend a lot of the book talking about uh, stories of organizers, volunteers who do politics for power. That is, they are trying to move something. They're trying to get people to vote or they're trying to get policymakers to change their mind about something. And they all are like, you know, they have almost like a, a pastoral like they're 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 like kind-hearted people who are trying to empathize with their neighbors and it's not because they're like that's prevent presenting some kind of fluffy version of politics that's presenting a version of politics where you want something from someone else yes and is it a, is it the case that the elites for want of a better word are playing hobbyism as much as the masses I mean, when you were talking about saying that everybody who opposes you is awful, you know, I instantly think of the Hillary Clinton famous deplorables comment. I mean, that is a sort of hobbyist thing to say about your opponent, right, which was actually politically disastrous for her. Right. We have this on both sides, right? We have, you know, Mitt Romney saying in, when he was running for president that, you know, basically 47 percent of the country he wanted to write off right away because they were they were somehow receiving benefits from the government. And uh, and we have Hillary Clinton calling the opponents deplorable. People fall into that language and we see it with elites. So I, I see elites in a different way. I mean, I think that take investors as an example. You know, you have on the right the most famous now, uh, political funders on the right are, you know, the Koch brothers. Uh, one of them passed away, but, you know, people yeah. probably know. the. And these people have invested a lot of money in this kind of slow and steady form of politics. They're recruiting state legislative candidates and they're investing in judicial races at the county level. And they're, uh, and they're funding think tanks and universities to promote their libertarian ideas. Meanwhile, on the left, we just had this very interesting example of two billionaires spending between the two of them, over a billion dollars in a matter of weeks 
on these like very self-centered <laughs> campaigns for president. This is I'm thinking of Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer. They're they're basically you know run like the only problem I can think of is not something that's like a 20-year problem, but a, a few month problem that Donald Trump is president and I this billionaire am the person to do it. And like that's how the left was spending its money. I'm a better billionaire was their basic pitch, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that again, I wouldn't call the Koch brothers hobbyists. I think they're real strategic investors. But you know, I think when you look at how Mike Bloomberg engaged in a in a frivolous campaign for president, I mean, I think that's that's uh, pretty pretty hobbyistic. Yeah. <laughs> so we, everyone can do that. You know, I mean, I think the some rich donors are spending. $5,000 to attend a cocktail party and take a selfie with a politician and other ones are you know being thoughtful about who's a strategic investment and we see that among the low dollar donors too some of whom are you know having a group uh, together putting money in to support candidates they care about and other ones are just like clicking in response to which politicians shouted louder at a debate but is that why someone like the Koch brothers have been able to be so effective in politics because they're not in it purely for the narcissism or anything like that. They're in it for, for power, as, as, as your book title suggests. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at local politics, state politics, most people, and I'm talking about the hobbyists, the people who say they're super engaged in politics, they really can't be bothered with anything that's not like the presidency. Yeah. And so you ask them like, hey, you know, there's a um, there's a 25-year-old kid. He just graduated law school, and he wants to run for state legislator. Do you want to? Or he wants to run for county judge. Do you want to support them? And the hobbyist says, like, you know, that's kind of beneath me. That's parochial. I, I want to. I, I want to be part of the big important stuff happening in Washington. And so the hobbyist can't think long term. And you know, as a result, I think still in most of our country, when you look at uh, some of the government bodies that are most important for even for big issues like the environment, like for racial equality. A lot of that stuff happens at the state and local level. But people, particularly on the left, who say that those are their biggest in- issues, you know, if you ask them what's the big important issues going on right now, they'll say climate change, they'll say racial relations and all that. But they cannot be bothered to actually focus on building power for the views that they hold when it comes to those issues locally. And part of that is that there's sort of a widespread uh, a nimbyism problem, right? Not in my backyard. That someone might say, oh yes, I would really like this international climate agreement. I would like this big green new deal. But when it comes to like maybe raising their gasoline taxes by a cent to pay for something, you know, they're not so into it anymore. And the same would apply for social justice stuff on the left, right? I mean, it, it, it's something you can feel good about on the internet, but you don't actually want to pursue any policies, policies that might make you suffer economically, right? That's right. I mean, you can see this in the US, you know, with like we have, you know, our, all of our, our schooling is basically based on uh, municipality and people who can afford to tend to live in wealthier municipalities with fancy schools that are we pay a lot of money for. And, you know, at those local levels, those communities tend to work very hard to keep poor people out of their school districts. And so, yeah, we have big problems like that at the local level that I think at the when when you're thinking about it abstractly, you have people who say, I'm mad as hell about this inequality, but they don't act like it when it comes to things that affect their home value, for example. And how do you chart the rise of political hobbyism? Do you think that it, um, I mean, presumably the internet is the big driver of it, but was it, did it come before that? Was Did it come with, you know, rolling news or... TV news? Was it, was it starting before the internet, do you think? 
Yeah, so there's a few there's a few historical pictures I paint in the in the book. One is about not just the internet, but the nationalization of news, right? With people's uh, shifting online to get their news uh, online, and they've basically uh, dropped all the local sources of news and only get national sources. But more than that, the engagement we have online in every hobby, not just politics as a hobby, has kind of been shifted to these like five minute stints that we can toggle back and forth throughout the day between our work and our home responsibilities and, and you know, whatever hobby we have. So it's very easy for us to spend a lot of time in shallow ways, but it seems comparatively harder to spend time in, in sort of like, in, you know, an hour or two in a meeting. But there are other, there are other stories here too. One is something we touched on earlier, which is that you know, for college-educated white people, particularly, you know, uh, the last generation or so has been very, very good. You know, we haven't had conscripted military in 50 years. The economic returns for being a, a college-educated white person have been pretty good. So, you know, there is a sense in which the stakes are feel low, and so there's no need to invest in politics. And then there's a, a bigger story in the book about the decline of party institutions, of local civic institutions that make it hard to engage in politics. I mean, I think that a lot of the changes that we have made in the U.S. to our political party system, the fact that we have these primaries where there's absolutely no vetting by the parties of who can run for president. Uh, we've had really a decline of the power of local political party institutions. And we have a rise of things like C-SPAN that's televising all of our congressional hearings and, and ballot initiatives, which I think are bad, both clearly for England and for us as well. Uh, and so I think there's been a lot of populist kind of reforms over time, particularly the ones to the political parties, namely primaries, that have also encouraged this kind of hobbyism. But it can be quite a strong force, can it not, hobbyism, in that if you can generate enough uh, of a feeling of the, the other side is our enemy, um, even if people aren't really engaged with the realities of it, that can drive out votes. I mean, I think the Democrats are hoping that just hating Trump uh, will be enough to win them an elect, well, before all the economic collapse and so on, but that they were hoping that just hating Trump would be enough to win them an election, and they might not necessarily have been wrong. I guess. I mean, I would point them to what happened in 2008 and 2010. You know, they had a celebrity candidate, Barack Obama. The country was going terribly under George Bush. Bush was very unpopular. The Democrats sweep into power with this candidate who is very inspiring. Millions of people are donating and getting out the vote and going on buses to knock on doors. And the Democrats win this massive majority in the Congress and they get the White House. What happens? Immediately after, as soon as that celebrity is not on the ballot anymore, everyone stays home. Now they can't be bothered. There's some legislative agenda they thought they cared about, like health care and the environment, all sorts of stuff. But they sit home. Anytime there's a midterm election, right, in 2010, for example, the first congressional election, which was a very important election for a number of reasons, you have this massive decline on the Democratic side in turnout. And you have it again in 2014. Anytime Obama's not on the ballot during the Obama years, you have really low turnout. You don't. You have Republicans, this Tea Party, very active in these town hall meetings, and the Democrats can't be bothered. So I think that when you have a, a focus on national celebrities, you have this cycle of ups and downs. That is when the wind's at your back, you might be able to win an election, and then it's not fun anymore, and so you stay home, and it goes back and forth between the parties. I think the alternative to that, right, I mean, the organizers that I study in this book, 
do something really different. I mean, they have personal relationships to maybe a hundred or a thousand people. And those hundred or thousand people vote not because of who's on the ballot, but because they have a relationship to the organizer. And that's the kind of politics that we don't have as much of anymore, but that there's a, I think there's, you know, a real important value. And, and by the way, some people look at that kind of organizing, like there's some person who controls a thousand votes by being a good person, by building trust. And those voters don't care about who the elected the politicians are, they care about the organizer. A lot of hobbyists say that's a kind of a dirty form of politics. Like, no, no, every voter should be evaluating every candidate based on the policy platform of that candidate. And voting because your friend says to vote is, uh, is sort of uh, bad or, or old fashioned or, or yeah. you know, right. a stupid form. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people said that about Jim Clyburn in South Carolina. Is it Jim Clyburn who, who endorsed um, Joe Biden? that that was a kind of, you know, that was a sort of uh, a game changer for Biden. And they, they spoke about it as though it was sort of slightly dodgy in a way, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that's politics, right? I mean, like, so I think that the, the hobbyists often has to have this uh, kind of focus on purity, too, that, that goes along with not really having a dog in the fight, right? I mean, it's only if you're not trying to get anything out of politics that you could take this really purist view that, you know, it's either my way or, you know, or the highway. And then, and you see some people, not very many, but you see some people on the left now, you know, like that, you know, they didn't, they, Sanders didn't become the nominee. So now they, they say they see no difference between, between Biden and Trump. Yes. And I, I wonder how you think the coronavirus crisis might change all this in that, I mean, nothing focuses the mind like the possibility of uh, social collapse. And I think that, you know, it's possible that uh, a lot of us, I, I probably call myself a political hobbyist, really, uh, would snap out of our short term thinking and start thinking about, you know, ways in which government matters beyond the celebrity and the, and, and the online narcissism. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's one path we could go down. <laughs> uh, and there are certainly organizations that are trying to do this and, you know, leverage people's some people now have time that they didn't have before or, or maybe some focus that they didn't have before. Uh, I think the trouble is twofold. One is that, of course, a lot of people are just, tr you know, taking every ounce of their energy just to take care of their families. And so it's, it's hard, it's hard to do anything. Uh, so I think you have some people, more people than ever in that situation, but you also have this possibility that if we're in a, a really kind of an online, an online only form of politics, you know, I think that's where, that's where the hobbyist mentality is most uh, is is most popular. So I think you know, for example, if uh, the 2020 election is waged pretty much only online, I would expect that 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 advantages President Trump because he's so good at being a center of attention online. Yes, and I suppose on social media in particular, all the incentives and the sort of rewards for your thinking are precisely what what political hobbyism feeds into. You know declaring short-term victories over people because you, you seem to have owned them in an argument online or something. Exactly, yeah. Well, Eitan, we'll end it there, but thank you very much for joining us, and I do hope we'll get you on again. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode of Americano, and I'd like to encourage you all to give us your feedback, positive comments or constructive comments only, please, to podcast at spectator.co.uk and say anything you like there as long as it's reasonably polite.